Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine right here on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. On tonight's show, I'm speaking with the editors of the book Amphibians and Reptiles of Wisconsin. It's a beautifully illustrated and definitive guide to Wisconsin's herptofauna, frogs and toads, salamanders, lizards and snakes, and turtles. It's available now from the University of Wisconsin Press. With me is Joshua M. Kopfer, certified wildlife biologist and a professor in the biology department at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Josh, welcome to the WRT Airwaves. Thank you, Catherine. And Donald J. Brown, certified wildlife biologist who recently left his position as a research assistant professor with West Virginia University to join the U.S. Forest Service Pacific Northwest Research Station in Washington State. Donald, thank you and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thank you. Happy to be here. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about what the spark was for you and and how you came to love this field and and your path to um, editing this book. Josh, want to start? Absolutely. Well, when I was uh, very young, I had an intense interest in dinosaurs. And in my young mind, the closest thing living to a dinosaur was a lizard, uh, right or wrong. And so I you know, that really fueled my interest in amphibians and reptiles early on. And probably the the other really important factor was that as a kid, I was always very interested in wildlife in general. And um, among all the wildlife species available and groups of species available, the most accessible are really amphibians and reptiles. I mean, you know, I grew up watching Marty Stauffer and, and Marlon Perkins. And, and, you know, those were things that only special people could access, but I could go out and find a snake, a garter snake or a painted turtle and actually hold that in my hand. And even today with my field methods and ecology class that I teach, I can't take them out and have them hold a coyote or a bald eagle, but we can go out and they can hold a painted turtle they've caught or a a leopard frog they've caught. So Mm -hmm. those were really what drove me to be most interested in those groups of critters, I believe. Excellent. So, Donald, uh, what about you? What's your path? Yeah, so I've had a, a bit of a roundabout path to herpetology. Um, like Josh, I grew up obsessed with dinosaurs. I was about five when Land Before Time came out. I loved <laughs> that movie as a kid, and then Jurassic Park, of course. And I grew up in the Denver area, so we'd go to the Denver, what used to be called the Denver Museum of Natural History. Um, I think it's the Museum of Nature and Science now, um, as a kid all the time, and they have really excellent dinosaur display. But as an undergrad at University of Minnesota, uh, I actually fell in love with bats. And after getting my undergraduate degree, I went to uh, Texas State University in Central Texas to study bats. And um, while I was there during my initial semester, the project that I was supposed to work on fell through. And so uh, I ended up switching advisors and moving into a lab that focused on amphibians and reptiles. And from there, I began working on an endangered toad in Central Texas called the Houston toad. And absolutely fell in love with this species. And then shortly thereafter, started working on turtles in South Texas and fell in love with turtles too. And I've never really looked back from there. Fabulous. I was really impressed by how this book took a lot of scientific information and made it very digestible. Talk to me about the goals of the book and the organizational tools that you use to make this information available to a wide variety of users. I think one of the, the the very important things for both of us was 
to make sure this book could be as accessible to non-scientists or, or maybe quote unquote lay people as possible while also being a robust scientific manuscript that graduate students and, and researchers could potentially use. And so that's a hard thing to balance, obviously, um, to, to make that. And I think, you know, the book has an intimidating size to it for the average person. So I hope that, you know, that doesn't scare anybody off because inside we've tried to come up with a lot of different ways in which this book can be most accessible to people that are just passively or, you know, have a passing interest in wildlife and natural history and amphibians and reptiles. So the, the, the beginning of each species account includes the at a glance section, mm -hmm. which is basically just a summary of everything that we go into much more detail in throughout the rest of that species account. And so they can get a quick overview of that organism without having to read the entire species account for that uh, particular organism. Um, and so that was a very important part of how we organized this book was to make sure that it had that summary so that any individual could pick it up and find something that they could use to identify and learn why an organism was in a specific habitat, et cetera. So I'll let Donald talk a little bit, though. I've talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I think Josh put it really well. And we did pay pretty close attention to language. We attempted to ensure that the writing could be interpretable by non-scientists. And we uh, have a pretty extensive glossary in, in there as well uh, to assist with that. Um, but I think on the science side, an important thing to know is it's not just a synthesis. We actually have quite a bit of original data um, in the book that has never been published before that was buried in old uh, Wisconsin DNR reports and things like that. And so even for scientists, um, I think this book has has new things to offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the uh, another important, it, I should, it just came to me, but another important way in which we made this accessible or wanted to make it as accessible as possible is we used what we called natural history boxes. Yeah. Uh, and these are sort of side anecdotal stories that, you know, anybody could pick up and read and think, oh, it's an interesting story about encountering species X, Y, or Z uh, in the field. And, and that was really something that came out of the, the original book by Richard Vogt that came out in 1980. Um, he had a lot of anecdotal bits in his book that gave it a kind of personable quality as well as uh, a scientific quality. Uh, and so we, we kind of wanted to emulate that because we both liked that part of Vogt's book. And so there are you know, as opposed to them being sort of inserted into the species accounts, they're set aside. So they're kind of an interesting story about X, Y, or Z. And we also were very, very adamant about having color figures. And so there are over 500 color figures. I can't remember how many exactly, but I think that lends itself to people wanting to kind of page through and look at uh, what's in the book as well. I agree. I think the illustrations were very well done. And the detailed drawings of the larvae are really compelling because you don't, that's something we don't think about is how to identify the larvae of, of the species. Um, and yeah, the natural history boxes were fabulous. I had a good time reading those. And Can I jump into just a yeah, second here? Yeah, please do. So, yeah, so one thing we also paid a lot of attention to is writing to one voice so that when you read each successive chapter and species account, it doesn't feel like an entirely different person is writing it. And so that was many, many hours um, to get us to that place. And I, I do feel like we have gotten there to where this looks like one entity 
mm-hmm. um, the book as a whole when you read through it. Right. Because you had many contributors from all across the country or across the state. Can you speak to that a, a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. And Josh, you can add if you like. I think we have over 50 contributors, if I remember correctly. Josh will correct me if I'm wrong. But um, <laughs> our goal, our, so here, here was sort of the, the tact we took. Um, we attempted to, as much as possible, lean into the Wisconsin knowledge. So we sought out experts for each species that either were in Wisconsin now or had worked in Wisconsin in the past. And the bulk of our contributors are folks in or from Wisconsin. There were a few species where we were unable to do that uh, just because we didn't have the expertise in the state or there was just somebody that was clearly the most suitable person that isn't in the state. In that case, we have we have people outside of Wisconsin, but we made a real attempt at making sure the, the local Wisconsin and the surrounding states were really the ones that were represented most in this book. Yeah, I think we were right at 50 contributors. Okay. So I didn't okay. need to make a face. No, no. So. <laughs> it's Okay. Let's see. Oh, one thing I wanted to do a, a deep dive on in terms of the components of the book were these identification keys for amphibians and reptiles. These were the uh, mostly, I think, illustrations about you know how to identify, and again, not only the adult species, but also the larvae. So can you talk about that section, those sections rather? Yeah, so... Um... Eric Wilde did all of the illustrations for the book. Eric is a former professor at UW-Stevens Point, and he's still affiliated with UW-Stevens Point. Um, And he's both a scientist and a scientific illustrator. Mm. And so uh, all the credit goes to Eric Wilde on those illustrations, and they they are amazing. Um, In general, we felt like illustrations were better suited for the keys than photographs. um, Because we can really show the characteristics that we're highlighting, whereas every Photograph is different and, you know, individuals display a lot of variation. So it helps with showing the characteristics that we're really interested in or that are needed for identifying that particular species. Josh, do you have anything to add? I think the the keys were, or are, I'm sorry, critical for uh, the use of identification by people who don't have a lot of experience in identifying amphibians and reptiles. And so those um, have to be worded appropriately and organized appropriately to not be too heavy with jargon so that people can actually access them. And and we, you know, used uh, keys that existed and we modified those to um, suit our needs a little bit. But yeah, those keys were a, a, an important part, but they don't work very well if they don't have good illustrations. And right. as Donald pointed out, um, Eric Wilde did a very nice job on the illustrations for those. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, the keys uh, to identification are the segments where you have that at a glance portion. No, am I am I wrong about that? Okay. Oh, that sort was of. in the so, that was in the main segment. Yeah. So in the at a glance, as well as in the descriptions, we provide descriptions of that particular okay. species, as well as potentially confusing species. Um, but that's separate from the dichotomous keys which is where you would go if you have no idea what you're looking at and you want to identify what it is using a key. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So let's discuss the individual species. If you want to um, choose a couple to do a a deep dive and talk about um, their status in the state, where they can be found, their ecosystems. So starting with, I want to start with salamanders because I think that they're perhaps the least understood of the Wisconsin amphibians and reptiles. So let's start with salamanders. Um, 
I, I can go first. Um, my, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to pick an individual <laughs> species. That's your favorite. in sure. in a lot of these groups, but I kind of really like the tiger salamander. That was probably the first salamander I ever saw up close and, and captured as a kid and held. Uh, and so among our terrestrial salamanders, they are the largest and they're personable. Um, when you have them in hand, they're interesting to look at. And I think probably as a, from a scientific perspective, why they have always been particularly interesting to me is because their larvae are very important predators within these pond ecosystems that they develop in. Um, sometimes they're referred to as a keystone predator in those systems where their actions and activities affect all other organisms within that particular ecosystem. And it's because they're very voracious predators. As larvae of salamanders grow, especially sal tiger salamanders, they're fully aquatic. They have big bushy gills that come off the side of their head, but tiger salamanders' heads get big, kind of wide and blocky, and they can swallow pretty large prey. So mm. when they're younger, they're eating invertebrates. When they get larger, they can get big enough to eat other tiger salamander larvae and, you know, the larvae of other species. Uh, and so they're important predators. So in some ways, I guess it's a little cliche to say, but they're sort of like the, the Yellowstone wolf of the pond ecosystem sure. because most of the ponds they develop in dry out in the summer. So they develop in the spring due to early spring rains and snow melt, but then they dry out during the summer. So they can't be colonized by fish. So mm -hmm. because of that, these tiger salamanders are the top predators. These larvae, I should say, are the top predators within those ecosystems. And it's, it's really fun to watch them. If you see them in these ponds, you know, kind of swimming around and you see their little mouths going, they're sucking in uh, larvae from different invertebrates, et cetera. They're very interesting to me in that regard. Excellent. So salamanders' habitat is a pond-type ecosystem rather than a bog or forest. Is, is that accurate? Well, so I think in general, it's important to remember that salamanders have two different phases of their life, like all amphibians do. They start off as larvae, and they're dependent on, generally speaking, there are some exceptions, but they're dependent on a fully aquatic lifestyle at that point. So they need a, a habitat that is aquatic, right? So depending on the organism, there are some that end up in bogs like uh, uh, four-toed salamanders, for example. Uh, but tiger salamanders are more of the loosely prairie-associated kettle wetland, open wetland type species where they breed in those wetlands and the larvae develop there. But once those larvae of all amphibians reach maturity, the adults move into the adjacent uplands. Right. So mm -hmm. then they become dependent on those types of, with, with some exceptions. I've been talking a lot. Already. Okay. No, that's interesting. Donald, do you have something to add? Yeah. So um, I've been working in West Virginia for the last seven years, which is salamander diversity hotspot oh. globally, <laughs> or part of the Appalachian hotspot. Sure. Um, and in that region of the world, we have a lot of uh, plethodon species, the genus plethodon, which are the woodland salamanders. Um, they're part of the family Plethodonidae, which are lungless salamanders. So they have no lungs. They respire entirely through their skin and they breathe through their skin. And they're an interesting group of salamanders because they are terrestrial. Hmm. So they do not need wetlands. And in fact, they don't use wetlands. They persist in the upland forests and they lay eggs on land and the larvae develop within the eggs mm -hmm. and they hatch out as miniature versions of the adults. Interesting. So they're a particularly interesting group and, and they can get 
really diverse in some areas of the country. But in Wisconsin, we only have one plethodon species, and that's the eastern redback salamander, plethodon cenarius. Okay, and so where in the state would we find that fellow? Statewide, or is there a specific area? Yep, cenarius is widely distributed um, within Wisconsin, and it's not a species of conservation concern, mm. but, it, but it's a special species in that, right, it's the only plethodon yeah, that we have yeah. in, West, in Wisconsin. Very cool. They're the only member of that that genus, but then the foretoad is also in the same family, Plethodon today. Okay. So just so there's no confusion about those two things. Sure. Great. Sorry. Nope. All good. That's why we're here. So let's move on to frogs and toads. I, I talked about the, the little wood frog that uh, we spotted in the north woods, and I have gray-green tree frogs around our home. But what, what other kinds of frogs and toads are cool in Wisconsin? I feel like I should let Donald start. Okay. I- no okay <laughs> right. um well uh it's interesting that you meant are you i'm sorry it's interesting that you mentioned the the tree frogs those are the, the the frog species in the state that i really like again because i had very early on experiences with them uh as a kid we have two species of you know what are considered tree frogs in the genus of hyla and that's um, the Cope's gray tree frog and then the eastern gray tree frog. Mm. It's Hyla chrysosilis is the Cope's gray tree frog and Hyla versicolor is the eastern gray tree frog. And they look very similar to each other. In fact, as a, as a child, we'd visit my grandmother's house and they'd be hanging on the glass outside attracted to the light, you know, going after insects. And even to this day, I see that. But when you look at them, even at that distance, you can't tell them apart um simply by looking at their visual characteristics Mm. uh, or at least it's incredibly difficult to um you can tell them apart because males have a different call so the males when they attract call to attract females have a slightly different call than the the males of the other species but if you have two of them in hand you can't look at them really easily and say this is Cope's gray tree frog and this is the eastern gray tree frog Mm -hmm. and so um they have a really interesting sort of history in that regard uh, when we think about their evolutionary background. And so one of those species, the eastern gray tree frog, is a tetraploid of the Cope's gray tree frog. And that, you know, is a little bit of jargon, but it means that the, the, the eastern gray tree frog has more sets of chromosomes than the Cope's gray tree frogs, and in fact, more sets of chromosomes than most vertebrates do. Donald, do I have that right? Is it the eastern gray? That's the tetraploid? Okay. <laughs> That would have been embarrassing. So then what I just called green-gray or gray-green tree frog, it's not the correct name, I don't think, for it. So which one am I seeing out, out by me? It would be either the Cope's gray tree frog or the eastern gray tree one frog. One of those. Okay. Um, it's one of those two, and without knowing what the calls in the area, or, I mean, doing genetic work on them, sure. of course, you can <laughs> find out which one is which that okay. way, but nobody does that okay. in the field. But it's one of those two. Okay, cool. Very good. Thank you. Donald, yes. Yeah, and the, there's a totally different species called the green tree frog. So uh, you don't want to say gray green. Okay. Won't know what you're talking about. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, and that green tree frog is not found in anywhere near no. the Wisconsin. Oh, so it would okay. Be really but yeah. Got it. Although gray tree frogs can be green, so they change their colors and uh-huh. they can be green. Highlights the importance of scientific names. Exactly. Right? A yeah. very good point. Go ahead, Donald. Yeah, I'll just point out the American toad because I mentioned at the beginning I fell in love with herps with the Houston toad. So I have an affinity for all toads now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, 
like the eastern redback salamander, that's a species that's not really a species of concern in, in Wisconsin, and it's widely distributed in the state. But it's our only member of the family Bufonidae. Um, so it's it's our toad in mm -hmm. Wisconsin. And we have an interesting anecdote in the book about giant toads. So uh, what often happens in island scenarios is, is populations develop differently than on the mainland. And in Wisconsin, we have a scenario off the Lake Michigan Islands where we have very unusually large American toads on those islands. And so if anybody listening is interested, we have a, a neat natural history box in the book about that. Excellent. So let's let's move on to turtles next. Yeah. So, um, well, with turtles, I'll just start with my favorite turtle, my all-time favorite turtle, the wood turtle. Uh, anybody who knows me that's listening to this is not surprised at all by this. <laughs> uh, three of my current graduate students are, are studying wood turtles right now. And I'll just talk about how wood turtles are, why they're the coolest turtle in North America. <laughs> so wood turtles are a, are a river stream obligate species. They overwinter under the stream. So they're at the stream bottom or they're burrowed under um, root bowls in the, in the streams. But during the active period, wood turtles are primarily terrestrial. So they'll come out of the rivers and streams and they'll forage around in the uplands and they can go several kilometers from the stream but they always come back because they have to overwinter in the stream. And that's a really unusual life history strategy for a turtle. You don't really see that with any other species uh, or very few other species are like that. So for most species, most of your aquatic turtles don't really come out on land unless they'll come out to bask, they'll come out to lay eggs. Other than that, they're usually in the water. Um, wood turtles are like a box turtle during the summer. They're out on land, they're foraging mm -hmm. on land. So they're they're really neat and unusual turtle. Um, and that is a, a species of greatest conservation need. Mm. And that's actually a species that's currently under review for federal listing under the Endangered Species Act. Interesting. Josh, I don't do you know if you want, yeah, if you want both of us to talk about our favorite turtle. It's, <laughs> sure. It's, it's hard to pick one again. The wood turtle is a really cool turtle. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, I really like Blanding's turtles. I really like snapping turtles, but you know, probably the one that is nearest and dearest to me that I've been involved with in the field the most is the ornate box turtle. Uh, and that is our only fully terrestrial turtle species in the state. So as Donald mentioned, you know, the, the wood frog almost behaves, I'm sorry, the wood turtle almost behaves like a, an ornate box turtle in that it spends time on land. Well, the ornate box turtle is a prairie, um, savanna, dry habitat species of turtle. And mm. even though distantly they're related to the pond turtles, like, you know, the Blanding's turtles and the painted turtles and things like that, they evolved along a different lineage where they exist in completely terrestrial ecosystems. And so here in Wisconsin, the ornate box turtle is listed as endangered and it has been endangered for a number of decades and it's very very susceptible to loss of grassland prairie and savanna habitat mm. which are some of the most endangered habitats in the upper midwest they've easy to convert to agriculture easy to convert to urban land uh, and so these turtles which need specifically very deep sand deposits, loose friable soil that they can dig down to below the frost line in to avoid winter mortality. Well, those habitats are pretty few and far between. The ones that haven't been converted 
that have appropriate levels of sand oftentimes get overgrown with aggressive woody vegetation species. So you have to actively manage to remove woody vegetation, keep it in herbaceous, you know, prairie type plant species. So it's a, it's a species that has a lot going against it, unfortunately. And mm. it is, you know, really sad because it's and also the pet trade people have in the past this doesn't happen as extensively today because it's watched over heavily but collected those little ornate box turtles because they're very cute uh as pets and the combination of all those things has been very hard on that turtle and many turtle populations actually i have a couple more comments yeah please yeah so uh for if you're out and about and you find a turtle uh on the road there are a few likely candidates. It's likely to be, Josh, you can you can add if, if you think it's different, but a painted turtle, a snapping turtle, or a box turtle are gonna be your likely turtles that mm-hmm. you're encountering on the roads. Uh, once in a while, you might find something else like a wood turtle, uh, but those are, those are really common turtles that, that you often see along roads. And people are always tempted to stop and, and help the turtle go in its intended direction. Is that a good practice or? Absolutely. Um, but the key is bring it in its intended direction, right. not uh, back. Don't go to like the shortest side of where it came from because it will just try to cross back. Right. And of course, do it safely, obviously, if you're pulling alongside the road. But that's good to know because you know, I always wondered about that, whether we're doing more harm than good. It's ironic. Just this weekend, I was in uh, Minnesota uh, at a friend's house. And because of the warm weather, there were two different snapping turtles trying to cross roads in his neighborhood. Um, The ponds had been drying up that they were overwintering in or planning to overwinter in. So they were trying to head to a lake, I think. But the the, the snapping turtle brings up a good point. Not only do you have to watch out for traffic, but snapping turtles, they have the ability to cause a little bit of damage if they were to bite. And so you have to be careful about how you move a snapping turtle across the road, not mm-hmm. just the bite, but their claws. Um, and most people don't first think I need to pick this snapping turtle up and move it. But um, just to make sure that you're being very careful. And I, you know, one way to, to get them across the road um, without having to actually pick them up is if you have something with a long handle Uh, perhaps a snow shovel that you would use in the winter if your car got stuck, or even if you have a long-handled ice scraper. Sometimes you can use that to get behind them and slide them across the road the way they're going to just keep yourself protected and make sure that the turtle gets across the road. Um, That's one thing that people frequently want to try and pick them up. Yeah, and to add on to that, for people who haven't worked much with snapping turtles and just kind of see them out and about, their heads look really short when they're just out, but their necks are actually really, really long. Okay. And so you could be a foot away from a snapping turtle and it may be able to reach out and bite you. So wow. keep your hands well away from its head. Okay, that's very good to know. <laughs> Sounds it's like also something- true of the soft-shelled turtles. Okay. Yeah great big long neck and and if you're closer to the big rivers then uh map turtles too are are species that you might encounter on roads quite a bit uh, during the nesting season most of the time not always but most of the time the turtles you would encounter along roads that aren't wandering around on land typically would be females that are heading up to nest somewhere and so that's why it's really uh it can be really devastating for turtle populations that you know it's often the females that are getting hit on those roads you're Mm, targeting one sex basically during the reproductive phase or when they were you know going to lay eggs as part of the end of reproduction Mm -hmm. so um, turtles face a lot of challenges uh, uh unfortunately 
And obviously that impacts just the generational reproduction then if you kill the females bearing eggs. and Yeah, and many of those turtle species can take a lot longer to reach maturity than mm. we would think of with a small vertebrate. Um, you know, it's it can be easily over a decade for a number of the turtle species before they reach maturity. Right. It can approach 20 years for some of them like Blanding's turtles, et cetera. Donald maybe knows more about that uh, mm -hmm. than I do. Sure. So uh, it takes about 18 years in the northern part portion of its range for wood turtles to reach sexual maturity. So uh, it's designed, if it makes it to maturity, it's designed to live for 100 years. Um, and so that's one of the reasons you, we're seeing that with a bunch of these different late maturing species. Blanding's turtle is another one. They're declining because it doesn't take much of what we call additive mortality, which mm -hmm. is mortality above natural mortality, mm -hmm. to cause population declines sure. uh, just based on their natural life history. Interesting. Let's move on to lizards and snakes and talk about them. And then I kind of want to get back to this topic of overwintering. Um, well, um, I, I have a, a particular favorite snake in the state, and it's the snake that I did my dissertation research on, mm -hmm. and that's the gopher snake. And the gopher snake is, uh, in Wisconsin, we have the subspecies of gopher snake, which is the bull snake. Uh, but we, you know, in the book focused on species level, not subspecies level so much. But the gopher snake is our largest snake in the state. There are historic records of it, you know, exceeding six feet. Um, I've never seen one that large. I have seen them over five feet, and that's a, an impressive snake. Uh, they are a true constrictor. In other words, they wrap around their prey and restrict that prey's ability to expand or contract its chest cavity so that it essentially suffocates very, very quickly. You know, those little rodents, their hearts are beating really fast. So it happens quickly. It's not a prolonged uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. But they're rodent predators, primarily lots of small mammals. They will get uh, small rabbits as well, which are lagomorphs. And um, they occasionally get ground nesting birds, but that's not their primary food source. It's usually uh, mammals, small mammals. Mm -hmm. and. They are another one of these sand, uh, prairie kind of savanna, um, grassland type species. They need those habitats that, as I mentioned with the ornate box turtle, are declining and very rare in Wisconsin and the upper Midwest. But they have a particular um, habitat requirement that restricts their range in the state beyond just the need to exist in grasslands and prairies and savannas. And that's their overwintering habitat. So these large snakes have to be able to get below the frost line to survive the winter. Now for smaller snakes, they can get in little rock crevices or the channels of dying tree roots and things like that. Whereas something as large as a bull snake, and this is also true for our two rattlesnake species, they need big rock crevices that we typically associate with bluff habitats along the Wisconsin and the Mississippi rivers. And so those crevices are large enough, deep enough, and reliable enough to get below the frost line. I mean, surely here in southeastern Wisconsin, where I live, there are prairies, right? But we don't see bull snakes because I likely they don't have a reliable overwintering source that is plentiful. I mean, there are animal burrows and things like that, but those don't remain in the same place year after year after year, like a big rocky outcrop would. So multiple, this is true of many amphibians and reptiles, multiple types of habitat requirements are necessary for them to persist. Mm. And it's the reasons why they struggle is because if one of those habitats goes away, it you know can basically greatly impact that species. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Donald, did you have a lizard or snake you'd like to talk about? 
Uh, I'll just do a, so I'm not really a snake guy. That's Josh. <laughs> okay. um, snakes are generally bycatch in my research. Uh, I, I can appreciate them, but I just don't really study them. Um, but a, a few tidbits that I think are, are interesting. One is the diversity of snakes in Wisconsin relative to the other clades of organisms we've talked about. We have more snakes than, than any of the other ones. Um, we have about as many snakes as we have of all amphibians in the state. Um, so that's interesting. And that has a lot to do with the southern portion of the state and the, the driftless area and the more open areas, uh, which is good for a lot of different snake species. And the other thing I want to mention is um, we only have two venomous snakes in the state, uh, the timber rattlesnake and the moss saga. That's important to know because, right, when people catch snakes, the immediate thought is, is it venomous? Because mm -hmm. that's danger. Um, and if you can learn to ID the timber rattlesnake, which has a rattle, and a lot of other characteristics that are identifiable for the species in a moss saga, then you, you can easily figure out that the snake you're holding, which you, I hope you're not holding it if it's venomous, but the snake you're holding <laughs> is not one that needs to be killed. Yeah. Not yeah, that the yeah. venomous snake can be killed either. Yes. True. And I, both of those uh, venomous snake species are um, quite rare and have restricted ranges in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So the, the Massasauga is state endangered and it is federally threatened currently. So there's not many of them in the state. Um, there's a handful of sites maybe where mm -hmm. they exist. And the timber rattlesnake is state threatened. So uh, both of those snakes are, are quite rare compared to many of the other snakes. And I, you know, Donald, you know, brought up a, a good point in that I, I think one of the other biggest challenges that snakes face is that across the spectrum of amphibians and reptiles, they're probably the most maligned. Mm -hmm. So people are frequently terrified of snakes, um, whereas a salamander might not bother them that much, or a frog might not bother them, or a turtle, right? Mm -hmm. So snakes have a lot of, you know, on top of the habitat loss and all of these other things, there's heavy, heavy human persecution. I mean, people will drive out of their way to get on a road shoulder to run over a snake, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, which is really terrible. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, so there's all of these t challenges that these organisms face. So I remember when I was a kid growing up in, in southwest Wisconsin, we had a hill that we called Rattlesnake Hill. So the decline must have, has that just been over the last 30 years? Like when did that really start? Well, so the, the timber rattlesnakes were both subject to the rattlesnake bounty that was yeah. active in the state yeah. until the 70s. That's and right. so um, snakes, uh, timber rattlesnakes can be particularly long lived, right? Like I had an individual that I had captured at a site when I was working on my dissertation and I had injected it with a, a microchip so I could identify it into the future. And I found that same timber rattlesnake, it was an adult then, and I found it around 10 years later, uh, that same exact snake with uh, undergraduate students of mine when we were doing workout in the Wisconsin River Valley. So they're really long lived. So you can have people impacting that population for a long time, but still have, you know, maybe adult individuals mm. that have avoided people, avoided the bounty hunters still showing up. And so they don't re rattlesnakes like uh, timber rattlesnakes don't reproduce every year frequently. So that means that they have, you know, maybe a two to three year interval between reproductive events. There's high mortality in the offspring. There is, you know, high mortality due to habitat loss. So those populations have steadily been declining over time. And so, and actually the, the, the Massasauga was listed as endangered, I think in the eighties, 
Hmm. The timber rattlesnake, I think, was put on the threatened list in the state in the 90s. So those have been, and, and part of it has nothing to do with, you know, how rare they are. Part of it has to do also with the fact that you need public support uh, oh, and political sure. support to get things protected. And not hmm. many people want to protect rattlesnakes. It's not like pandas or, you know, things like that. Sure. So. Yeah, and, and that public support thing really has been a struggle, um, not just in Wisconsin, but in all the states within the timber rattlesnakes range. It's This is a species that people are truly afraid of, and they fear, some, of, some people feel fear for their life when they encounter one. And regardless of their status, this is a species that people will often just kill. Um, and so we've had that issue in West Virginia. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure Wisconsin has that same issue. And uh, it's really hard to recover species that people are are actively seeking to destroy. And at least now there's not monetary gain for doing it mm -hmm. because the bounty has been uh, ceased. There, there's no bounty anymore. But right. um, that doesn't stop it from from happening. And and to Donald's point, I when I was doing my work on bull snakes, that's also those were in, that was an area where there were rattlesnakes as well. And many of the the, the private landowners in the area. Um, when I contact them and say, Hey, you know, can I access your property? Because I think there's a snake that I'm tracking on the land. They were almost across the board in they, they, all the farmers there liked bull snakes, right. And gopher snakes because they ate rodents, mm -hmm. but many of them did not appreciate timber rattlesnakes because they're dangerous potentially. So mm -hmm. even people that will put up with snakes sometimes don't appreciate the venomous species. So I wanted to go back briefly on this topic of overwintering. I think you mentioned that they overwinter beneath the frost line. So can you say a little bit about exceptions to that and exactly how that works? Talk a little bit about that overwintering cycle. I'll just do a few a few notes and then Josh, if you want to take over. So uh, many species do have to overwinter over the below the frost line or they'll perish. Uh, during the winter, but some species are adapted to surviving freezing. Uh, they essentially have a physiological adaptations that have cryoprotectants that allow them to live through it. Uh, wood frog is sort of the poster species for mm -hmm. that, where they can freeze solid and then unfreeze in the spring. And so um, one thing I'll note that's interesting is turtles. I mentioned that wood turtles overwinter at the bottom of the stream. So turtles have evolved to be able to uh, absorb oxygen through the water, uh, mostly through their cloaca, not entirely, but mostly through their cloaca, which is their, they breathe through their butts, people like to say. So that's kind of an interesting factoid. And, and each species has its own tolerance for more, more or less anoxic conditions. And so a, a wood turtle is on the lesser end of that, which is why they have to overwinter in streams where there's a constant flow of water coming through. So it's more oxygenated water versus a snapping turtle that can be in a wetland that is highly anoxic and can survive through the winter. Yeah, in addition, they basically turn their system off. So they, they don't need, they're not using really any energy at that point. They're ectothermic animals. Um, they essentially have the equivalent of a pilot light through the winter. So they're not really needing the oxygen much either. And that helps them survive through the winter. Yeah, the strategies that amphibians and reptiles use to survive the winter are really diverse. I mean, Donald talked about, you know, the different strategies with turtles, the frogs. Um, snakes don't have the ability to... Uh, physiologically produce cryoprotectants. Some species will overwinter 
at the sort of water land interface, but it has to be in a location that doesn't freeze solid. So we see some species that live close to water overwintering in, for example, crayfish burrows that go down and the water within that crayfish burrow kind of rises and falls as the water level of the adjacent water body does. Mm -hmm. And the snake can follow that, but they typically can't survive if that area becomes totally frozen or if there's spring floodings that draw or push those, force those snakes out of those crayfish burrows before it's warm enough, they get pushed out. Then there's a sudden freeze and the snake can't survive that. The other type of overwintering we see uh, in things like snakes would be the use of existing crevices, burrows. Most snakes are not creating their own burrows for the winter. They're using an existing structure or the abandoned burrow of another organism, or I'd mentioned before the uh, root channels for a dead tree that are starting to rot and allow a space for the little snake to get down into. So they need something that gets below where frost penetrates in, in the winter. And in Wisconsin, that penetration can be fairly deep. We usually think about roughly three feet, right, for the max penetration of penetration of frost up here. Obviously, there's variation in that. So if they don't have a place to overwinter, they won't persist in a location. So that's why that overwintering habitat is so critical. Sure. So we're coming up on the last few minutes here, and I wanted to talk a bit about the, the conservation um, of of these guys in Wisconsin. If we want to discuss the Wisconsin Frog and Toad Survey, also, you know, what our listeners can do to help these species succeed in the state. Yeah, I'll start with the Wisconsin Frog and Toad Survey. Mm-hmm. So that began in 1981. And that was the, Wisconsin was the first state to implement a statewide frog and toad survey for long-term monitoring. And um, eventually that was, it was started in response to declines of of anurans in the state. Um, But ultimately that that initiative was brought to a national level run by USGS uh, and it was modeled off of the Wisconsin frog and toad survey, which is kind of a neat thing. And since then, it has been ended at the national level, but Wisconsin continues annually to do this frog and toad call survey. So it's produced some really interesting and useful data for us. And in the book, we have um, trajectories or trends of each species uh, based on the on the survey data. And so um, we have both occupancy and abundance trends that can be derived from that. And, and it's a relative metric, so it shouldn't be treated as truth but it's a gauge for how each of our inurin species are doing in the state. I think the uh, a critical component of the frog and toad call survey too is that it is a citizen science project. In other words, it requires volunteers to work and people have volunteered to go out and you know listen for amphibians and reptile, or I'm sorry, not reptiles, listen to amphibian calls. And, and so without input or buy-in from the general public, that important survey does not happen. So is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is important for our listeners to know, either about this area of study or your book? There's one thing that I just want to mention, and, and you can use this or not. And Donald and I have ever have never actually spoken directly about this, but this book came about because Donald and I have never had never met. We had never talked to each other. We didn't know each other. 
And even after this nine years that this book has went on, mm -hmm. we have only met face to face, I think three times once. No, there was twice. Cause one time you had to pick something up for me and I was at a Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know if you remember that, <laughs> but um, for a birthday party, but uh, we had never, and even those meetings were probably five minutes, right? At most we didn't. So we have only ever discussed and work remotely through email, electronically, through things like Zoom, et cetera. And so this book, the, the fact that it came about is really profound because Donald and I were sort of introduced by a third party. And, you know, the need for this book to happen was something that all of us shared. And that's how we got started on this process. Mm -hmm. And I look back on it now and to get into such a massive project with somebody that you barely know of course, we didn't know how massive the project was at the time. It sort of snowballed as we went through it. But mm -hmm. without, you know, I am so thankful to have met Donald this way and that he was involved in the book because he has skill sets that I do not have. And we I needed him to be involved or this book would have never happened on my end anyways. Yeah. And I'll note that the magnitude of this book is because of Josh. So the original vision for this book was maybe half the size of what it turned into and as like josh said it snowballed as we went along and as scientists we we really look for one-stop shops to get what we need and we often find ourselves going to uh, what we call the bibles which are the of the united states and canada so there's mm -hmm. the salamanders of the united states and canada and the neurons a, a snakes a turtles we use that as our model for our species account but we catered it to Wisconsin in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So it's not the same as those accounts, but we tried to make it as comprehensive as those accounts. And like I said earlier, we also have quite a bit of originally published data in this book that hasn't been published before. So I think we think this is going to be a, a really useful resource for scientists, for naturalists, for just people interested in amphibians and, amphibians and reptiles because of the way we wrote it, mm -hmm. where, where people can understand uh, what it's about. And so that's what that was our goal. That's what we tried to do. I really think that you um, succeeded in that regard, and I'm I'm grateful that this collaboration uh, came together. Um, it is a big book, clocks in at over a thousand pages, very comprehensive, but also, as I noted earlier, very easy for the non-scientists to use and understand. It's, I I want to just mention real quick too the importance of all of our contributing authors. Um, we've talked a lot, we've spoken a lot just in general as if we've done everything, but we the, the book could not have happened uh, without the buy-in from all of these contributors that that were interested enough to you know, share their expertise with us. And so I, that, that's a critical component of this book. And, and one of the things that separates it from many of the other books like it in other regional sort of field guide type books or mm -hmm. regional books on different types of critters. Right. Thank you, Donald. And then I'd also like to acknowledge the uh, individuals and agencies that provided funding for the book. Um, and what that did was it allowed us to reduce the cost of this book by approximately $50. So we've got it. it it's a large book, but it's a manageable cost given the size of the book. And mm -hmm. again, as Josh said earlier, all full color figures, that's not cheap to print. Um, and, and there were a lot of donors for the book, but, but particularly, I want to point out the West Virginia, excuse me, I'm from West Virginia, the Wisconsin mm -hmm. uh, Department of Natural Resources, which donated uh, about half of our total uh, money donations for the mm -hmm. book. 
We also got a huge contributions from the Milwaukee Public Museum as well. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep us, but of course we could talk about this subject forever. But I, I also would like to mention, again, you can use this if you, if you want to or mm -hmm. not, but we were very, very dependent on museum specimen collections for aspects of this. Okay. And museum specimen collections are one of those things, sometimes even among scientists, they're viewed as a thing of the past, right? A bunch of specimens preserved in jars. They take up a lot of space. They take up a lot of resources. But the importance of those specimens is very, very high for not just efforts like our book, but also future conservation efforts. I mean, we went through many, many museum specimens at the Milwaukee Public Museum, but also the University of Wisconsin-Madison Zoology Museum. Mm -hmm. um, and these were historical specimens that provide definitive evidence that a species was present or was not present in an area 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And today, now we have this record of that to say, well, look, these were here at one point in time. So what does that tell us? So we spent I, hundreds of hours in museum collections working on looking at specimens, using them for our range maps. I had a huge number of undergraduate researchers that spent a lot of time working on it as well and helping me out. Uh, and so we, we just want to highlight that because those institutions don't receive enough support mm. uh, today in the modern world and in the, the, the even among scientists. And so we think that is a, a very important part of, of being a scientist, especially in the natural sciences. Sure. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you very good luck with the book. Um, it's beautiful and very accessible. And I look forward to uh, seeing where it goes. So thank you so much for your time today, both of you. Thank you very much, Catherine, for having us. You bet. You are listening to The Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM community-supported radio in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. I've been speaking with Joshua M. Kopfer, certified wildlife biologist and a professor in the Department of Biological Science at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, and Donald J. Brown, certified wildlife biologist and research ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service Pacific Northwest Research Station in Washington State. They are the editors of the new book, Amphibians and Reptiles of Wisconsin, available now from University of Wisconsin Press. Thank you for listening.